0: Welcome to Sci-Fi Tech Talk, the podcast where we explore the technology of sci-fi. I'm Mike McPeak, and with me today is Jeff Sire. Hello, everyone. And Julie is off uh, at a WordCamp conference, so it's just going to be Jeff and uh, and me today. And we're going to be talking about the, uh, I guess it's Canadian television show. um, Actually, it was a syndicated TV show, I guess, that was played in Canada and a few Fox stations. But it's The Star Lost. And we kind of picked this uh, show because the uh, guy that's the producer of this show was the director of the movie that we did last week, which was Silent Running. And uh, when you watch it, you see that they reused a lot of the uh, props and such from that, uh, that movie to uh, um, this TV show. But uh, we'll start with the uh, synopsis of the show here. This very low-budget TV show, which was shot on video as opposed to film as most regular TV shows are, involved a giant spaceship called the Ark, which was composed of hundreds of domes, each of which supposedly contained a sample of culture from the planet Earth, which long since died out due to something or another. If memory serves, it was pollution. Anyway, this giant spaceship had an accident somewhere along the way in an asteroid storm which killed the crew that was piloting it, so now it's careening towards a, get this, uncharted solar star. The uh, character, played by uh, career uh, Duella, who was Dave in uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, was forced out of his dome and goes roaming around the ship with his two friends trying to set the uh, course correct so that they don't hit the star. That was a a synopsis from IMDb. It was, um, let's just say it was short and to the point. Yes. (laughs) Uh, You know, my synopsis (laughs) of it would be uh, something like Star Trek meets uh, As the World Turns or something like that.
1: Right. I would would say anybody who's Canadian who is in their probably mid-40s to mid-50s who's into sci-fi, will almost for sure remember this, because this played, like, incessantly on CTV in Canada. And also, the one the, of the three main characters, the uh, guy that played Garth, Robin Ward, he is now, he went on to, uh, I don't think, I think this is the only thing he ever acted in, and he went on and became uh, the main weatherman for the Toronto uh, main flagship CTV station, so, yeah, like even if, if you're Canadian and living in the Toronto area and you watch this, even if you've never seen before, you will recognize him immediately.
0: Well, there uh, was more than a few faces I saw in there. A lot of um, – uh, some of their guest stars were character actors. I probably couldn't tell you what their names were, but I know I've seen them around. Now, there was one multi- or, uh, noteworthy guest star on there, uh, Walter uh, Kena uh, um, of Star Trek fame, yeah. uh, Chekhov, guest starred on there twice.
1: Yeah. And this is one of those things that, like, if you start looking for the worst sci-fi of all time, this is definitely – this This shows up on most of those lists. But uh, at the same time, like, you can see the nuggets of a really good story here.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would – to say it – to put it, it – I would say put it on the worst production of sci-fi – Cause there was some interesting stories that if they could have maybe fleshed them out a little bit and worked with them a little bit, uh, they could have had some, you know, compelling stories there. Like the first the first episode where they were, this uh, when they started out, uh, these three people were basically living in what amounted to an a- uh, Amish village, or Amish village, um, and they were basically cast out because they didn't want uh, to, Rachel didn't want to marry... Um, Um, Garth. Garth, yes. Instead, she wanted to marry the other guy. But, I mean, they had this whole kind of like breeding program uh, because they were uh, basically selecting for the best genetic uh,
1: match or whatever. See, and they didn't elaborate on that. But I think in a closed environment like that, I think they'd have to do that. If you had – like they don't talk about how big the biospheres are, but – from what they describe later on, they say it takes two or three days to walk across it. So say like these things are 40 kilometers in diameter. You like even (laughs) that is only going to sustain a population of a certain size. And it's probably only going to be maybe a hundred, 200 people or something like that. Over time, you would have to manage those bloodlines. And in this, they're doing it by the computer. They don't go into detail about why they're doing this. But I'm sure that you know in their in their writing things that that was one of the things that they they talked about. Like you would have to manage those bloodlines because this is a multi generational starship. It's going to take them hundreds of years to get where they're going, and if you don't have any outside you know DNA coming into the mix, you'd have to do to do that.
0: Yeah, there would have to be. Yeah, certainly a for lack of a better term, management of the herd because um, that's. In essence, what we uh, what they have here is all these different biospheres or different herds that need to be managed as human beings. Uh, and, yeah, you got to make sure that keep the population in check, uh, management of resources, all this other stuff. Uh, so that would certainly be something. And, you know, like I said, they brought it up, but they never really addressed it. And the other thing that I thought that they could have um, – uh, I, I found compelling about that first episode was um, these people were – you know, they were sort of – um, making fun of strict religious orders that you know the the you know not uh, not just Christian orders but anything that uh, their holy book is the book and you don 't question it and you know you do what it says unerringly um, even though you know it doesn 't make sense you don 't understand or sometimes it 's even detrimental or whatever um you know that you don't question anything. You don't look at the world around you to see it, say that you know maybe we should be doing something differently. Um, that was something that you know they brought up and they never really questioned. They never really looked at that close about um, you know on one hand when you're in a survival basically this is a survival situation. If you're shooting people out in space, uh, this is your last hope to preserve the human race. You're going to want them to follow the rules. Uh, you know, like breeding policies or you know that kind of stuff resource management all this so you're going to have to follow the orders but when the orders get to the point where it's detrimental to the society uh, and you're not even allowed to ask questions and say maybe we should be doing this differently i mean there was a whole story there that could have been explored but they just kind of um and i realized they had to get the story going and they could have maybe revisited it but um, and i thought maybe they might but uh they just kind of put it out there and then just left it there
1: yeah. Like it's, um, I like the overall story. Like the bare bones, kind of like the synopsis said, the bare bones of the background to this story is that something happens uh, to the Earth. The Earth is now unlivable. So they build the Ark to get them to another star. The trip's going to take many hundreds of years. And to preserve the Earth, they construct the Ark that has these multiple biospheres. And the, uh, I, I don't remember them staying in the show. You watch more episodes than I did, but in the Wikipedia entry, it says that the ar- the dimensions of the arc are like it's 80 kilometers wide and like 300 kilometers long. Like it's enormous. And uh, they say that uh, um, they're preserving all these, you know, each of the biospheres is preserving different, you know, environments of the earth. And about 100 years into the trip, they have some catastrophic event which seals up everything. So what it is now, like 500 years after that, is these people have forgotten that they're on a spaceship. So the first people that get out and they realize, like, oh, you know, they're wandering around. And then they find out that they're on a collision course with this star. Do they ever say when they're going to collide?
0: Um, it wasn't, like, real soon i mean it was maybe a generation or two down the the road they had some time it wasn't like it was going to be within the next 10 minutes or you know anything like that it seemed like they had a ways but they needed to start you know working on it now um i'm trying to remember if they did specify a time but they had some time but they needed to find somebody that knew how to change the course and they needed to get their engines reactivated and um navigation back online and because apparently there was some sort of a virus or something that killed off the navigation crew or something like that um so they were uh and then they they keep encountering all the different civilizations there and they each have their own problems or whatever and um and it was kind of became a a a sphere of the week story almost they'd visit a different sphere and you know there'd be a different thing there but um you know, they never, yeah, that was their whole goal, was to try and find somebody that they could, you know, change the course of the ship. But, yeah, um, I want to say it was, it, they had some time, a hundred years or something like that, I think.
1: Right. Yeah, it's, like I said to start with, it's it's something that's got like a good nugget of a idea behind it. And they certainly had good people. Like Harlan Ellison was the, uh was the, uh, kind of the producer, and then Ben Bova was the uh, science advisor. So they had good people involved. Now, Harlan Ellison apparently in, at one point invoked, uh, when when he wasn't happy the direction was going, he invoked a section of his contract where he could um, change his name on screen to, was it Cordwater Beard or Beard or uh, something?
0: Cordwainer Bird.
1: Yeah. So that way it wouldn't have Harlan Ellison up there. But, well, I kept uh, seeing
0: that name pop up, and I thought, what a weird name well once I finally started you know doing the the research here, I found out yeah he did uh, yeah he wasn 't real happy because there was a number of things that plagued the production of this um i don 't know if you saw it or not, but I went on YouTube and they had a seven minute provo- promotional uh, uh segment for this show talking about, it. and they were going to use this uh uh technology called magic cam which was going to be um the actors would stand it was a two camera setup system so basically the actors would stand in front of one camera in, in front of a green screen and then there would be a second camera panning along a uh, the uh, the scenery there so you could have like motion um there would be motion it wouldn 't just be like flat standing in front of a uh, green screen or whatever. well, yeah. that had issues and it didn 't really work and so they had to drop back to the old standard green screen method of doing things which took up a lot more room and so they uh, couldn 't construct the sets that they wanted and couldn 't go into as much detail so the whole production was hampered by a number of things and uh, when I mentioned to Jeff that I had watched all 16 episodes, um, he was sort of flabbergasted. But this is actually <laughs> one of these movies that uh, it, it's good to play uh, Minecraft by because you can sit there and listen to it. Uh, you don't really have to watch it too closely. You look over there once in a while to see what's going on. But just the the pacing was kind of slow. I guess I'd kind of call it soap operation in its pacing and the way that some of it did, especially the first few episodes um but it was just kind of um i think if maybe if they could have cut it down to half an hour uh cut uh, and sped it up a little bit and kept the stories a little tighter um and and worked on the stories a little bit i mean they started out they had some potential if they would have gone back and revisited some of these well the only thing that they did kind of go back and revisit was they had um uh uh, walter koenig come back for a uh, a guest starring role that was about as far as they went for a you know, coming back to revisit any stories. Um, yeah, just, uh, and, you know, it seemed like they wanted to be a Star Trek kind of type of show, but it just never really worked out for them.
1: Yeah. Some of the, uh, we could, I guess, talk about some of the technology that's in there. Um, now, like, like you were saying, you've watched more of this hmm. than I have. Like I, I think at one time or another, I've probably seen almost all of these episodes, but it's been years and years since I've seen them. Um, but some of the things they have, uh, cryogenics, they, uh, they have some elements of the crew that for whatever reasons have been frozen so that they could either uh, bring them back at a later time to either cure diseases that they developed that they were hoping to develop a cure for or people that were kind of too important to allow them to uh, um, to die at the certain time that they were they meant to bring them back at the point when they were getting close to the planet or, or whatever. But it is it only the one cryogenic chamber that's near the bridge, or is there more than one? I don't remember being
0: – I think they only talked about cryogenics at one time. Okay. I don't recall them, you know, bringing anybody back. They did all kinds of things to bring characters back. They experimented with, like, um, um, basically holograms or, you know, computer-generated stuff and, um, yeah, they, they're, they're, you know, you watched it. They had a, a, a bunch of different technology in there. Yeah, they had cryogenics. The ones that, um, I don't know, I found kind of irritating was they called them the, uh, what was it, the jump tubes or the bump tubes or whatever they were. Right. Yeah, that was kind of hokey um, where they kind of, um, they would go, basically you'd be transported up these tubes and you kind of went up there by, uh, well, I think it was for dramatic effect, but they flailed their arms around while they're getting, you know, teleported or whatever it was. And it just looked a little hokey and cheesy.
1: Yes. Cheesy is a good good word to apply to this whole thing.
0: Oh, please. This would make the state of Wisconsin proud. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they had, uh, yeah, cryogenics. Um, some of the things I saw later, they had like stun guns. I never really saw anybody, uh, killed by a weapon. Uh, one guy did get gassed to death trying to kill, uh, uh, basically giant killer bees. Yes, they went to giant killer bees in an episode, <laughs> but they, uh,
1: oh, what was going to say? Oh, it's gone now.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, kind of like this, this TV show. It was, it, it can be gone kind of quick in a blink of an eye, but, um. Yeah, you know, they were talking about interstellar travel, about traveling to a different, trying to find a new star system that they could settle and repopulate, so, right. you know, that was a um,
1: a technology that they brought up in this show. And it is a generational ship, which, that's kind of unusual, you don't, they, like, in most sci-fi, it's just kind of like, uh, like Star Trek, we get on our starship, and, you know, a few days at most later, we're at our destination, whereas this is probably a more realistic, you know, of, you know, when humanity does decide to go out to the, to some other star, it's probably going to be a gigantic ship like this. That's going to have thousands of people on it. And it's going to take years and years and years, if not centuries to get there.
0: Yeah. The people that leave probably will never see the, their arrival point. Sure. Uh, because yeah, it will take probably you know several generations unless we make some you know giant leap in it when it comes to um, sp- uh, light uh, space travel, like speed of light uh, technology or near speed of light, something to that effect. Um, so that, but yeah, it's still going to take plenty of time to get anywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then like I said, there was. Um, Oh, uh, they were using uh, uh, jammers to jam the computers. Um, oh, like I, said, I was only kind of half watching this because it's not the kind of show you can concentrate on 100%. But, uh, yeah, they, you know, all sorts of, mm, you know, tech that, um, I don't know exactly how to put it in the words. You know, they speculative tech, you know, what they thought it might look like at some right. point.
1: Well, and it's funny how... Uh you know, things have changed over time. Like so much of it is like they've got to insert some special chip in order to do things or some, you know, in, insert this thing so that we can, you know, the so the computer can scan it. There's no real, you know, Wi-Fi or anything like that, no wireless technology. Even though which was weird because even though they talked to the one guy and he says all the, all the ship communications and the ship systems are all integrated and they can all communicate with each other, but every time they sit down at one of those Little pods where they're asking questions, they are always constantly having to take chips and stip, stick them in slots,
0: <laughs> yeah or cylinders or something like that. Uh, yeah. you would have thought somebody well you would have thought somebody might have thought of like um, i don 't know integrated storage of some sort, be it a hard drive or solid state or uh, yeah. uh, what was the ones they had on the, the star uh, uh, enterprise um, bio uh, they were biocomputers of some sort
1: in Star Wars.
0: No, Star Trek.
1: Oh, Star Trek. Oh, yeah. I
0: don't know because uh, I know they were talking about it. Um, oh, um, it was it had some sort of biological component to it because I think at some point it got a virus in it or something like that. But um, oh, like,
1: like the Borg or something, or?
0: no, no the um, or maybe that was an experimental one that they were ex- um, uh, oh. experimenting with it in um, on um, Star Trek that um it was it was biological in nature though because they the uh human the, biologically it could store more data than just plain you know silicon based stuff
1: right hmm. um what else there was a lot of this stuff is just uh like we said like really really hokey stuff i did like the the little uh the use of the the question chairs or whatever—it was like the way that they could interface with the computer. And there was always that f- funky guy with the uh, with the beard who oh, would yeah. uh, the uh, it was the kind of representation of the computer.
0: I, yeah, I want to play that guy. I, I want to be that actor. Yeah, I could sit there and look kind of grumpy. And yes, what is your question?
1: He did get frustrated with them too, which I, th- I found that amusing. He'd get, he get seemed to get annoyed when they asked the same question <laughs> over and over again. Obviously, this was a computer designed by nerds. Yeah. This is actually, uh, this whole thing is very post 60s. Like, it's, uh, hey, let's get along, and, oh, the old people don't know what's going on, and we've got to pitch in and, you know, save the world, and, you know, that kind (laughs) of flower power type thing.
0: Well, yeah, and even, uh, well, I try to think some nods to, uh, like, the women's rights movement. Even though um, Rachel, when she was in the agricultural community, was supposed to like sew and make butter and mend garments or whatever, but they had uh, once they got out there into the rest of the ship, there was female crew members.
1: um, Yeah,
0: and then one of the episodes, they even had a society that was all men.
1: Yes, yeah,
0: uh, which I thought was kind of a. Well it's an interesting idea, supposedly the women weren't able to survive, so they had um uh what do they call them artificial wombs or something like that um, so they could they had basically um female well they generated eggs somehow and then the the men would be, uh, fertilize the eggs and they'd grow them in these chambers um, which was that was an interesting concept um we're coming up with like a single-sex
1: um, community. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can't imagine that being a very fun place to live.
0: No, and some <laughs> of the stuff they were doing. Well, the guy would have them. Um, he'd have guys in there doing gymnastics. Well, that would bore him after a while. So it was like you know, start to wrestle, and they must have been like really bored or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just looking down some of the episodes here. Um, they uh, they dipped into time travel a little bit. And I kind of like the way that they uh, uh, dealt with explaining time travel. Well, basically, it's too complicated for you to understand, so I'm not going to explain it. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, just yeah, don't bother with any of that silly... Ex- Although, I guess they did kind of break down, did uh, try to have an ex- uh, explanation at some point. But... Um you know, I thought instead of you know, I think Daryl the Trek nerd probably would have been okay with this uh this TV show because they didn't do a lot of techno babble. They threw some stuff in there. uh but I don't think it was it was too bad when it came down to it.
1: Yeah, I I don't know, like this is not really heavy on the techno babble at all. It's just kind of like uh, you know, get down here and open up that arc, and they're really just trying to figure out how to restart the navigation system. It's kind of the overarching... That's really the overarching kind of plot for the whole series, is to reboot the uh, navigation system so they can avoid collision with this star. Like, the one engineer that they wake up, he's like, okay, we're, we're in orbit, and you're like, I don't even know what... I, I don't even understand what orbit is. And he's like... Because he was expecting that they would have reached their the destination planet that they were headed for, and that they would be in orbit, and that was why they would woken him up. And uh, he was not happy to learn that. He, well, he was not happy to learn that he was still about to die. <laughs> so they put him back to sleep.
0: Yeah, in hopes that somebody could figure out how to cure him or something like that. But yeah, um, like,
1: and most of the most of the groups that they find are like descendants of one or more particular parts of the ship. Like they're descendants of like in the start, they're descendants of Cypress Corners, the people that were working in that particular biosphere but then they run into people who were descendants of the, the service maintenance people and the, in the who lived in the tubes and then the security people who were, you know, and none of them are really well, no, not none of them most of them are not completely familiar with what they're even doing anymore they just, they only know that their little section and most of it's become jumbled as to their knowledge of, of even that they're on a ship or whatever. So.
0: Yeah, and they kind of uh, – this one episode reminded me of a Star Trek episode, and I can't remember the name right offhand. But th- this episode was called The Children of uh, Methuselah. Uh, where it was uh, this one section was just kids none of them older than about no i don't know 15 or something like that that thought they were actually piloting the ship but all they was doing was they'd been they were given the drug that they were keeping at a constant age and then once they got to the uh, their final destination to whatever planet they found they'd be given the drug so then they could resume uh, aging normally but they thought they were actually piloting the ship, but uh, and they'd been doing this for you know several hundred years. Well, come to find out, they had only been doing uh, it had been a practice simulation that they'd been running over and over. Uh, and so I think they were once they found that out. I think they kind of um, they went back to being children because they were more like like robots almost, or you know cadets or whatever trainees. Um, so uh, when, you know, in the end, I think they were all happy, laughing children or whatever. I don't know exactly what they they did with them, but um, they just kind of left them in their you know little space, I guess, and went off to the next one. But uh, that was kind of interesting that um, uh, in, uh, ageless children would be uh, living in one of the spheres.
1: Hmm. <laughs> would you recommend this to, to somebody else?
0: <sighs>
1: <laughs> That's a tough question, isn't it?
0: Yeah, because it didn't suck. I mean, it's not like I'm trashing Because like I say there is some interesting stories here. And, you know, if you could take liposuction to this thing and suck out the bad parts, uh, you'd probably take it, you know, from... Uh, 16 episodes down to, I don't know, there's probably some you could eliminate here all together completely. Uh, But, you know, time-wise, you could probably suck each episode down to about half an hour and tighten the scripts up. If you could do something like that, yeah. But just to say, hey, you should watch this. Uh, If I knew the person was a true sci-fi fan, I thought they could you know, see past the, the boring parts. Uh, and see what it for the show for what it actually is. Yeah, I would recommend it. But for the average person, I would probably say no because it is kind of a it was. This it, is kind of the same criticism I think we had for Silent Running that it was just kind of uh, slow paced or they kind of took a well in you know Silent Running's case probably about a twenty minute movie and made it what it was an hour and a half or a little over an hour anyway. Um, so yeah, it, it, they both suffered this, from the same fate. They tried to make the story too, or the the episode too long to fit. The story didn't fit the uh, length of the episode.
1: Right. Yeah, it's. Uh, I this is a a real tough one for me, because I I do have kind of this is one of my earliest exposures to sci-fi because I saw this that came out in is it seventy three I think. I believe so. Seventy, yeah, seventy-three to seventy-four. Okay. So I would have been about probably four or five years old when I was seeing this, because I remember actually I remember commercials hyping this that it was coming out, and I remember being really excited and like and thinking this was really cool. And so I, have, when I look back at it, I can't not see it with kind of like through rose-colored glasses. Um, even though I realized that, you know, it is Brita, a real stinky piece of cheese, <laughs> I still kind of like it.
0: Yeah, and, you know, that kind of fell into, uh, I wish I could remember for sure, but that time period, uh, I think people were looking for uh, anything kind of science fiction because uh, Star Trek had ended in, was it 68, I believe. Yeah. And, and so, uh, and I don't remember what else there was for, you know, science fiction on TV, or what there was for science fiction movies at that time, but I think you know it hadn't really. Science fiction really hadn't gained its footing in popular culture. I mean, there was, uh, there's probably been a subgenre of you know science fiction for out there, but for it to actually get to you know mainstream acceptance where people would want to watch it, that uh, that took a while. I think. Um, I think Star Wars probably kind of kick-started it and then the Star Trek movies came out. And then from there, I think it's been uh, steadily growing. But uh, in between the uh, original series of Star Trek and you know, Star Wars, there's this uh, just kind of empty spot. You know, and even I remember thinking that you know, I wish there was something out there for us to watch. I would even uh, read some of the – even though I didn't think a lot of them, I would read some of the Star Trek books – um, that weren 't necessarily they weren 't the TV episodes they were just based on the Star Trek universe uh, and for me i 'm not exactly a purist, but I always kind of liked the Star Trek episodes and anything that wasn 't that I always thought was you know kind of lame or you know whatever just wasn 't quite the true Star Trek but I mean, I got to the point I was even reading that kind of stuff just because You wanted some sort of, uh, you know, sci-fi fix.
1: Sure, yeah. And, you know, it comes down to a point that you'll take what you can get, right? Uh.
0: Right. And so this is one of those things that, uh, you know, I suppose that's probably why it went on for 16 episodes. Because nowadays, they may have gone two or three episodes and just pulled the plug on it. Yeah. and back then, I think uh, shows had a little bit longer to maybe prove themselves or something but uh yeah, I don't know the a, a show like this would survive very long
1: today yeah or even get made at all like it's the kind of concept is kinda out there like i I think it'd be i think it'd be a tough sell to put this on uh uh a network, uh, a network show today. Um, I think it might be something that would play to a smaller audience, like on uh, like Evil Dead, uh, not Evil Dead, <laughs> Walking Dead, or uh, one of those shows. Uh, like if you were playing uh, on uh, AMC or, or something else, I think this would be an ideal candidate for like a uh, for a reboot and uh, like a reimagining. Because um, uh, like like we've said, like there there's cool ideas here. And uh, it just was poorly executed, and they had, you know, poor, poor to no special effects. Um,
0: yeah, I think if they would have been able to, if you were to do it now, the special effects, they should be able to do, you know, a lot more and make them look better. Yeah. That would certainly help. And, um, yeah, Yeah, like I say, just tweak the episodes. I, I'm... Sp- I'm reasonably convinced that most of these probably could have worked as half-hour episodes rather than, um, you know, the hour that they... And the, in the actual time, it was like about 50 minutes per episode. But I think they could have chopped that down and still kept a good story. And probably could have kept the pace going a little bit better so a person wouldn't... Um, wouldn't mind watching
1: it so much wouldn't go off and play minecraft (laughs) yes
0: and just kind of oh yeah okay that uh, yeah you know unless i was listening uh to the episodes i didn't really watch all of them that closely it wasn't like i was glued to the screen or anything but um yeah i think with modern production values and things like that it could probably be done because you know let's not forget somebody made the movie uh sharknado um yeah so i yeah, I think, you know, if you make a movie like that, there shouldn't be a reason in the world you couldn't remake this and probably do it better. Yeah.
1: Um. This was also, this was made in studios in Toronto, which is another kind of, you know, thing that near and dear to my heart. Like, they like they don't, we don't have a whole lot of homegrown, homemade television shows. Like, we have a bunch of American shows that come and get made in Toronto and Vancouver, um, we do have, you know, made-at-home uh, Canadian shows, but not a whole lot of them. And, uh, and science fiction, like, I can't. There was one in the 90s, I can't, it was, it was uh, oh, this doesn't sound very good, just sitting here, me trying to remember it. But it was the uh, William Shatner's, uh, uh, his foray into uh, writing sci-fi. The, the limited run uh, TV series, and that was uh, so. That was a Canadian production and everything. Uh, Lex, I don't, I'm not sure that he was involved with that, but that was one of the ones that there were two at the time. I think Lex was one of them, and I know Lex got you know relatively good reviews. We should probably take a look at that at some point on the podcast. But uh, yeah, there's not certainly not a lot of uh, homegrown science fiction up here. Science fiction in Canada is actually. Uh, kind of poo-pooed, like we have a, a strong writing t- tradition and, uh, but our writers tend to be kind of highbrow stuff that <laughs> nobody but intellectuals wants to read and uh, certainly you don't see, we do not foster science fiction writing to the point that like Margaret Atwood's books um, on uh, Mac Adam and uh, The Year of the Flood and stuff like that um, she does not even refer to it as science fiction which is, that's a typical Canadian writer thing. It's like, no, 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 this is speculative fiction. This isn't science fiction. And the underlying thing is, I certainly wouldn't be associated with that riffraff, you know.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of a shame, because I think, um, yeah, I know some people have turned up their nose at science fiction, like it's not real, you know, literature or anything like that, but... uh, you know, and maybe it's because we are doing a science fiction podcast, therefore we are we, we do love science fiction that we defend it. But I consider it just a uh, much, you know, a liter- literary form than as anything else. Maybe it's not highbrow literature, but, you know, neither is, um, you know, pulp fiction novels or romance novels or anything like that. But um, I certainly think, and, you know... We always say how it gets us to contemplate different social issues and, uh, you know, things of the future and maybe influences uh, people inventing things. So I, I certainly think that it's a viable form of fiction and it shouldn't be, you know, scorned.
1: Right. Yeah i don't know we don't uh you and i when it's just us we don't uh go overly long do we <laughs> no
0: we don't and you yeah. know yeah we kind of need julie's the, the crazy glue that holds us together here
1: but
0: yeah uh yeah i'm sure she would have some more things to say about it because you know um I'm, I'm trying to channel julie now and see what she would be saying here but um you know like there was some interesting storylines here um um like i say just the, the exploring social norms and i think like i say, i think they were trying to channel star trek to a certain degree on here i'm sure that they were you know hoping to replicate that um with um you know some of the social commentary and things like that but towards the end here yeah i think it was starting to break down i think they were just trying to get episodes out because the second to the last um uh, episode here was uh, a scientist bred giant mutant uh, bees. Bees, yeah. yes. And yeah. then the last one, I think uh, it was called Space Precinct, but I think a lot of people are calling it Space Cop Garth or something like that. Right. Um, so, so they were getting pretty pretty lame, uh, and that, there was something about a writer's strike in there too. I think it was just plagued by a number of different things that just kind of hampered it. Um. But yeah, I just can't. I can't trash this because I think it does have some possibilities. But yeah, I don't know that I'd necessarily recommend it to anybody to watch either.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, it's it's <laughs> it's tough. And and uh, I was just looking at Robin Ward's IMDb page. So if anybody wants to point this out, I'll head them off. That uh, he this wasn't the only thing that he did. He actually he worked as a like I said as a weatherman on the TV station in Toronto, but he actually acted in a lot of stuff. Like, nothing major, nothing big, but uh, he was acting regularly all through the 90s and uh, right up into 2006. So, yeah, just small parts.
0: Yeah, a lot of these people, I thought I'd probably seen them somewhere. Uh, A lot of them were like, you know, character actors that... uh would show up, and uh, I suppose they were probably looking for work. Um, Yeah, he was on the, I guess the guiding, no, that's back in 1952. I never would have watched that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not that old. Uh, No, I'm just looking at his bio here to see the things that he's done, but even um, uh, Gay Rowan, she looked a little familiar.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what she did other than uh, other than Star Lost. Um, well, it's seen like,
0: elsewhere. I might have seen her there. Uh, yeah. I'm just it's just I, I'm sure I've seen these people somewhere, but um, I just yeah. can't.
1: Uh, well, Kier Delia, like he had such an iconic role in 2001. I think it was probably difficult for him to kind of get any role other than that yeah I'm sure but he, he has acted a lot but he's he never had the success that he had with
0: 2001 yeah um you know open the pod ship doors uh hell yeah yeah you're not gonna <laughs> yeah and once you get kind of typecast you know there is some roots going back to 2001 here because um this um uh the, the, the director um oh i 'm trying to find his name here now uh worked on as a special effects um on two thousand and one and i think um oh I'm trying to find his his uh legacy here but um I know he 's done special effects on several different uh science fiction shows and of course you can never find anything when you want it. <laughs> um yeah, this makes for wonderful uh podcasting here. Uh, but um yeah, so I mean he's uh he's been involved in several different uh uh science science fiction TV te- or you know m- movies and such and he was the director for that uh Silent Running and which we so- thought was you know it wasn't a horrible movie and that, that was again that was one that had a certain message to it. Um but it could have just done
1: again shorter. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's f- like it's funny. I'm, I I just found something online for uh, for Gay Rowan and Robin Ward that they were both at a uh, like a st- essentially a star lost reunion in 2012. I wish I'd known about like that. I definitely would have <laughs> gone to see that. Well, that would have like been this- kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, um,
0: I don't know. I- you never hear anything about it. Is there sort of a... Well, if they had a reunion, there must be some sort of fa- uh, fan fandom for this TV
1: show. I think this is like a lot of kind of weird little things like that, that they... Uh, like, there's a dedicated group of people that just, you know, love it, right?
0: Oh, yeah. I'm sure, you know, there's lots of stuff out there that I have small, dedicated um, uh, groups of people that, you know, just, you know, will love them and support them, but, you know, it's not enough to keep a a TV show going. Oh, here we go. I finally found it. Douglas uh, Trumbull.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, He was the producer, right?
0: Yeah, he was the producer. Yeah, now I'm trying to... um, I I know he was... um, Oh, he did he was offered the job to produce the special effects for star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, and he turned down the, uh, offer to provide special effects for star Wars. <laughs> Whoops.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Maybe should have, <laughs> well, maybe it would have turned out differently. I don't know. Um, Oh yeah. Um, Special effects for the Androm- Andromeda strain. Um, he says, "I was a young guy and very naive." He later recalled, "I seriously underbid the job. I had no idea what these things were supposed to cost. I nearly went bankrupt as a result." So, uh, <laughs> he he's apparently learned a lot along the way. So, yeah. <laughs> I bet. Uh, yeah, I mean, even though there's 16 episodes, there's not a lot more a person can really say about this. That uh, you know that we haven't said a couple times already that, um, interesting series just, um, could have been done better.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I would, I would say, uh, you know, it, your cost of entry is very low. Like everything's on, uh, YouTube. So try it out. See what you think. Yeah. See if there's something in there that we might've missed. Cause
0: you know, it, as far as the tech goes in there, they had all sorts of little things along the way, but um, stun guns and, you know, different uh, tech like that. But there wasn't anything that really sort of. I guess the biggest piece of tech in there would be the whole ship itself. And, yeah, you know, that's an interesting concept to have a bunch of biodomes uh, like that trying to preserve, you know, everything. Uh, it just <laughs> seems a little weird that they're trying to keep them so isolated.
1: Yeah. I don't know. It just makes me wonder that, uh, like, to build a ship this big, you would have had to have massive construction yards in space already. Well, if you can live and work and do that kind of stuff in space, even if the Earth is unlivable, why do you need to leave?
0: Um, Yeah, especially if you can construct uh, worlds so realistic that... um, You know you can 't after a few hundred years you don 't know that you 're living inside
1: a you know an artificial sphere well un- unless of course uh, like because we 're just going under the- insu- assumption there 's nobody left at the earth, well, maybe this is just a small part of the population that said okay well we 're going to head to this other star to spread out, maybe." There are still people, even if the Earth is unlivable. unlivable, Maybe they've moved to the Moon and to Mars or wherever, or orbital platforms or something. So maybe there's still humans left in our, you know, uh, you know, uh, our kind of uh, solar system of origin. And uh, this is just a a segment of the population that has gone out to uh, to colonize some other place. Well, and you know, I'm trying to think here. Do they ever say that this is the you know all that remains of humanity? I don't know that they do.
0: I don't think they do either. And like the, uh, you said they they called it unlivable. Unlivable. Maybe it was like the pioneers uh you know trekking out across the plains here that they wanted um, a better life, a different life. Um for, and so for you know their way of life it had be maybe the earth had become unlivable. Um Although it did sound like some sort of you know catastrophic e- uh, event had occurred, but uh, you know it could have been uh, could have been ecological. It could have been political. They didn't really quite spell it out. Right. But um, yeah, like I say, there's not not much more to say. Um, from what you remember, was there any tech in there that you may have wanted?
1: Well, I did think that that uh, um, that the little chair with the computer that you could ask questions I thought that was pretty cool if I had to pick anything it'd probably be that it seemed to be this omniscient sort of computer that could pretty much answer any question
0: as long as you put the right uh, cylinder yes. in it yeah <laughs> that was a little that was a little hokey um, you know if, as far as any tech in there that I might want um, I don't know those those bounce tubes looked, well, amusing. I don't know if they are an efficient form of travel, but they sort of caught my attention, maybe because they did look a little hokey. But, you know, that might that might not be a... There, there's worse ways to travel, I guess. So uh, I might go with that. But, um, you know, I think unless you've got something else uh, you want to add, um, uh, I think, you know, that'll wrap up this episode of Sci-Fi Tech Talk. You can check us out at sci fi tech where there's plenty of cool space junk available for purchase. Or follow us on Twitter at sci Tech Talk. If you have any ideas or comments, please send them to sci fi at gmail.com. And reviews on iTunes are always welcome. Jeff, where can people
1: find you? People can follow me on Twitter at uh, Bronco Sire. That's S-Y-E-R.
0: And uh, I can be found on Twitter at DSC Chipman. And you can see the other things that I do at my about.me page at about.me slash Mike McPeak. That's M-C-P-E-E-K. That's it for this show, and we'll see you in the future.